0: trinitas church we are about to engage a topic that is uh one of much controversy in the church today we're going to talk about the topic of speaking in tongues you know i often tell people that this church plant is unique because though we are presbyterians the number one church background at trinitas among everybody here right now is actually the assemblies of god it's the number one background Almost everyone in this church has spent some time in the assemblies of God. Some people as youth pastors, other people as worship leaders. Uh, many of us went to an AGE school. And so the topic of speaking of tongues is, is one of, of mo- much relevance to us. Some people in this room have had a very bizarre and negative experiences with it. I'm sure he won't mind, but I do believe it was Chris Thrower who went to one camp where they were teaching people to speak in tongues, and after many, many hours of trying, he was instructed by his mentor to fake it till you make it, and as I understand, it eventually did work out. He did make it after he faked it. Um, But it raises a question as to what this phenomenon is, something the Bible talks about, and we've got to become clear in our own minds about what it is. And how it's relevant to us here and now. So with that in mind, let's bow our heads and go to the text of scripture. Asking the Lord to grant us illumination and understanding. As we saw, that's sort of an analogy to the gift of prophecy that was so prevalent in the early church. So bow your heads with me. Mighty God, we come to you knowing that by our mere human efforts and labors, we cannot rightly discern what this word would instruct us with regard to all of these great matters from salvation to the more curious, like speaking in tongues. God, we pray that you would grant us understanding, that you would speak powerfully to us through your word today, and that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our minds, open the eyes of our heart, that we might glean from it wisdom and truth and guidance and instruction, and most of all, be pointed back to the gospel. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, Father, and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. As is our custom, I'm going to read the Word, and when I'm finished, I'll say, this is God's Word. You may respond, thanks be to God. We'll rise to our feet and sing a short verse, the glory of Pottery. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 6 to 17. But now, brethren... If I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also You. Unless you utter by the tone speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no one kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian. And the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only... How will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. This is God's word. Please be seated. Hmm. Now, friends, we're going to begin our discussion with a labor to answer the question, what is the gift of tongues? Now, perhaps for some of you, you've never considered this. It's not a big deal to you. It's not a big part of your Christian faith. If that's you, let me assure you of something. That is not the case for everyone here or everyone who might pass by Trinitas Church. It's a matter of great importance to many. Therefore, we must do our best to understand what the Word of God teaches about this gift. And I'm going to say from the get-go. I believe that it's rather clear from Scripture that the gift of speaking in tongues is the miraculous ability to speak in a previously unknown human language. That might seem to be clear enough, but some have been taught something different throughout their lives. It's not uncommon for people to be taught that speaking in tongues is this sort of ecstatic experience wherein gibberish of some kind might flow out of your mouth from a trance-like state. Some of you have heard it taught just that way. Others of you have maybe heard it taught like this. There is a gift of tongues that is a prayer language. That is a language unique to you as the prayer. And it's an emotion-filled sort of groaning that accompanies thoughts and feelings that are too deep for words. Popular depictions of the experience of speaking in tongues often it is one of these two things that I've just described that you will see. People simply flowing out sounds and noises that are indistinct and by no means any human language. Given that perspective, I want to take some length to explain why we ought to regard this gift as speaking in foreign human languages. And I begin with the testimony of Acts. We began this mini-series on the gift of the Holy Spirit, reflecting on the great event of Pentecost. We saw how it changes everything. And on that great occasion, when the Spirit descended, we read that people spoke in tongues. Notably, on that occasion, it is clearly other human languages that people were gifted to speak. In Acts 2.10, it says, after listing about 15 different people groups and implicitly their dialects, it says that those who observed that great event said we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. are clearly, speaking in tongues is speaking in other human languages. The same would be gathered from the chapter we just read in all of 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians thirteen two, for example, says this, when Paul is making his great argument about how pivotal love is to the manifestation of any gift, he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am like a clanging gong. Clearly, by the phrase tongues of men, we have in view human languages. Some have thought, perhaps, that Paul is validating the idea that there's an angelic language out there, but as we saw in 1 Corinthians 13:2, that would seem to be a hyperbole, not an experience that Paul really counts as within the fray of things that a Christian might experience, because it is parallel to things like having the gift of comprehending all knowledge and all mysteries. How many people understand that there is no gift of omniscience in the New Testament? By the same right, to speak of the tongues of angels would seem to be a hyperbole, but at minimum, speaking in the tongues of men is clearly an experience that the Corinthians believed they had had. By the same right, Paul describes this gift of speaking in tongues as full of words and not mere gibberish. In chapter 14, verse 19, Paul says, I'd rather speak five words of prophecy than 10,000 words. In a tongue. Still more, Paul, when describing the gift of tongues, very carefully says in First Corinthians twelve, ten, and 12, uh, 28, that there is a gift of tongues uh, to speak in various kinds of tongues. That word kinds is really the word from which we get the word English, genus, different families of tongues. It'd be very strange to speak of different families of prayer language. But when we speak of human languages or tongues, it makes great sense. Tongues is often paralleled to another gift, the gift of interpretation. This too speaks to the fact that speaking in tongues is speaking by way of miracle in a foreign language. Because the word for interpretation is the common word for translation of one language to another. Paul here in 1 Corinthians 14 also argues as much. He says... That when you speak in an uninterpreted tongue, it reduces the other members of the church, as it were, to foreigners to you, barbarians. Because you are speaking, as it were, in another human language. He says this, if then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian. And the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. The word barbarian, it's actually onomatopoeic. you don't know what that means, it's a word that actually sounds like the thing it's describing. The Romans would describe the Germanic tribes as barbarians because their speech sounded like bar, 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 bar to them. But it happened to be an actual human language. Another reason why we believe that this phenomenon of speaking in tongues is indeed linguistic is because it has rational content. We read that the tongue speaker in 1 Corinthians fourteen two speaks mysteries in his spirit. Every time that Paul uses this word musterion about 20 times in his letters, he is always referring to divine doctrines disclosed by God and revelation and not by human reason. And so, the tongue speaker is declaring great doctrinal contents, whether the people present understand the language or not. Early in 1 Corinthians, Paul spoke of the incarnation as a great mystery. Later in chapter 15, verse 51, he'll speak of the resurrection as a great mystery. He will say that ministers are stewards of the mysteries of God and that prophecy is a gift. Connected with the disclosing and understanding of mysteries. So it is with the tongue speaker. He speaks wonderful contents of divine revelation in a foreign human language. I'll mention furthermore that when the tongue speaker has been interpreted, it virtually reduces his speech to a word of inspired prophecy. We read in 1 Corinthians 14 5 that the prophet is greater unless The tongue speaker gets interpreted so that the body can be edified, the church can be built up Moreover, in Acts 2, when tongue speech first appears in the world, listen to how Peter interprets it. He says this, For these men are not drunk, that is, people speaking in tongues, as you suppose, but this was spoken of through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Tongue speech is prophecy in a foreign language. Later in Acts, you have the same exact sort of connection made when Paul explains that the Holy Spirit has come to 12 disciples of John the Baptist. It says the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Speaking in tongues is speaking a prophetic word in a miraculously given foreign language. Given all of this data put together, It would seem that our thesis is rather certain that the gift of tongues is speaking in foreign languages. And you might ask, why has anyone ever arrived at a different conclusion? The answer is because several times Paul says things like this, for the one who speaks in a tongue, no one understands him. Some have absolutized that language and argued that when you speak in tongues, no one on planet earth could conceivably understand or comprehend you, and therefore you must be speaking an individual prayer language. I'll simply note that those who make that argument aren't taking very seriously the language of Scripture. In Isaiah 33, 11, when the people of Israel go into exile in a foreign land, it says this, A people of unintelligible speech, which no one comprehends, of a stammering tongue, which no one understands. What does that phrase, no one comprehends, mean? It doesn't mean that the Assyrians and Babylonians spoke a language that was literally incomprehensible. It means that no one of the Israelites who go into exile in those countries will understand. And so it is, if you were to speak in a foreign language in this church, no one here would understand you unless perchance they happen to be a native speaker of that language. Another question that we have to answer is what is the primary object of tongue speech? How many of you have thought... That speaking in tongues was a gift given to Christians so that they could go out and evangelize people who spoke in other languages. Just be honest if you maybe thought that was it. The funny thing is that every time tongue speech is described in the Bible, it is never described as a gift of evangelism. The primary object of tongue speech, again and again and again, is God in praise, prayer, and song, and not foreign peoples in evangelism. In Acts 2, in the day of Pentecost, those standing by says, say we hear them speaking the mighty deeds of God in praise, as it were. In Acts 10, 46, another occasion where tongue speaks occurs, it says they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. 1 Corinthians 14, 2, it says for one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. And of course, preeminently here in our chapter, it says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. I will pray and I will sing with the spirit. Friends, if you didn't know this, tongue speech in a foreign language has as its primary object God again and again. This leads us to observe one of its purposes. It was a sign gift that what was being fulfilled was the Old Testament promise in Psalm 86.9, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. This gift was a mighty indication that all nations were being brought into the fold of believers and thus praising God, even in foreign languages. The last thing we need to consider about this curious gift is the mental state of the tongue speaker. Very clearly in the Bible, the tongue speaker is not in a frenzy, as it were. This is because Paul tells us that the tongue speaker can control and restrain himself and must be silent if there is no one there to interpret. What this means, friends, is that if you've had experiences where someone is on the floor shaking and babbling and doing things such that no one can intercede with them, guess what? It is clearly not the biblical gift of tongues that we're observing. The other question that we gets raised, however, is this. Does the tongue speaker himself comprehend what he's saying? We are told that a tongue speaker cannot always interpret whatever message they have. And this has led to one of two conclusions about the gift. Either the tongue speaker is so overwhelmed with this other language that their very thoughts are in that moment being uttered in a foreign language such that they cannot even interpret what they're thinking. Or others have argued that the tongue speaker may have no idea what he's saying in a foreign language. Friends, I'm clearly on the side of those who would say that the tongue speaker's very thoughts had been transformed into a foreign language. The pivotal passage is 1 Corinthians 14, verses 14 to 15. It says this, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Some have supposed that what this means is that the tongue speaker's mind has turned off, as it were, and the mind is inactive, and the Spirit of God is powerfully praying through them. I don't think that that's correct. Every time this word unfruitful is used in the Bible, it refers to some sort of bearing of fruit or affecting some good outside of oneself, in which case Paul is saying this, my spirit under the influence of the Holy Spirit prays just fine. But my understanding is not imparted to others when I pray in a tongue. It would seem that this is what Paul has to mean, because he goes on to say, if you bless with the spirit, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say amen at your giving thanks since he does not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough. How can Paul say you're giving thanks just fine and well if the tongue speaker himself didn't know what he was saying? Likewise, he says, if there's no one to interpret, the tongue speaker must keep silent. Let him speak to himself and to God. I don't know what good it would do for a tongue speaker to speak to himself gibberish that not even he understands. Clearly, the tongue speaker understands his message, though, as it were, in a foreign language. Friends, when we have this understanding of what's going on in mind, we can now interpret and imply, apply what Paul says about tongue speech. Paul says that for you to be benefited by someone speaking a revelation in a foreign language, it must be interpreted. Otherwise, this church, no church, will have any benefit from it. He gives three basic arguments for this, and it's easy to follow. Paul says, first of all, even lifeless instruments must make familiar sounds in order for you to benefit from them or respond to them. He says a bugle call with which you would alert people to war, it must make a distinct call. Otherwise, people will not know whether they should man their station, organize for war, or gather to the king. I mean, think about it. What if the guy with the bugle, the watchman on the tower, instead of making a distinct sound, made a carnival tune? Beep, boop, boop, beep, boop. People would think that the tower had been taken over by the enemy. It would have no benefit to those present, and you get it, friends. When you go to a wedding, you know that there's a song that alerts you to stand. Here comes the bride. If that song were replaced with the 2000 hit, Who Let the Dogs Out?, you would not know what to do. You would maybe assume that someone took control of the speakers, and you would probably be offended, not knowing whether to stand or remain seated. The point is clear. A familiar and distinct sound must be made. If this is true on instruments, it's doubly true with our language and our speech. Paul's second argument is this. Does violence to the very purpose of language itself, to speak in a language unknown to everyone present, it reduces us all to foreigners if we should speak in a language not known? Language wasn't meant to isolate But to facilitate communication and so it says there are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world and no kind is without meaning. By implication why then would you use a language to convey something without meaning? Paul's third argument is this. It's an argument from worship itself. Everything that gets said in this church, whether by prayer or by preaching, confession of sin or confession of faith, should be something that you comprehend and can therefore say amen to. Trinitas, I don't know if you've ever considered this, but we speak the same words together in unison a lot in worship. Have you ever noticed that? This is because all throughout the Bible when God's people worship, from their making of covenant with God in Exodus 19 to the building of the foundation of the temple in Ezra 3 and Nehemiah 8, it says that the people all spoke with one voice. Trinitas, the church is called one body, and there is only one day a week where we actually look like that. It's right here. There's only one day a week where we actually all speak, as it were, with one tongue, rise and fall to our knees, as it were, at the same time as one body. Paul says it's of paramount importance that the church be a place where everyone can participate and give their approval with an amen. Friends, I bet after reading all of this, many of us actually are a little bit aghast and we wonder why in the world they even wanted to have a worship service where no one could understand anything. Do you read the chapter wondering that? Why was this even appealing to the Corinthians? And this is where we have got to take a look at ourselves. I'm going to make a basic thesis for you, and it goes like this. We all love to be confused. We actually love it when we cannot comprehend something clearly. And we live in a culture that would embrace confusion before clear and unambiguous speech. And we are part of that culture. Let me put the matter very simply. If God's self-disclosure is fundamentally ambiguous and beyond comprehension, guess what that means for you and me? No one can be finally condemned as a sinner. If God has not spoken clearly about what is right and pleasing to Him, nothing you do can be counted as sin. So we have at this Corinthian church indulgence in all sorts of sins. By the same right, no perspective on God can be strictly false or strictly correct. It's even in our culture so often counted as a mark of enlightenment and wisdom to say things like this. You ever heard this? God is incomprehensible. And I can't believe anyone would be so arrogant as to say they know who God is. You ever heard that? It is a welcome and invited and appreciated situation if God should be unknown. Friends, if God does not communicate clearly, either to the mind with information or even to your moral sense, your soul, then guess what? Your feelings reign supreme. Then your feelings reign supreme. I actually went to my uncle's birthday party recently, and um, I got into a conversation with a man who had created a religion of his own. It was a conglomeration of Buddhism and Christianity. Yeah, no joke. We are all going to be reincarnated endlessly, and if we do well enough, we'll end up in something like the Christian heaven. I explained, you do realize you just took the Christian heaven and slapped that on top of a Buddhist view of reincarnation, and somehow that works for you. And I remember saying to the individual, you do understand if the world is this pantheistic thing where we are God and God is us, then God is a sinner because we're sinners. You have no reason to trust that God or his revelation. Do you know what he said to me? He said, yeah, that sounds right. He actually preferred a situation. And his feelings seemed to uh, loan themselves as witnesses to the conclusion That God does not and cannot communicate clearly. And isn't it the better for all of us that he cannot and does not? Friends, this issue of rejecting clear truth for confusion is germane to the history of Christianity. I'll bet right now, even you could understand, if the person sitting next to you found themselves only able to speak German... In their words and in their thoughts, it would be sufficiently exciting and amazing to you that even you might think, man, let's quit the service and watch what this crazy guy does. He's just speaking germ. Look at this. You might even go home saying you had a more remarkable experience at church that Sunday having learned nothing but having seen something wild and crazy. How many of you can identify with the desire to just see something wonderful and to leave with no rational content to speak of. You guys, the earliest heresy in the Christian church that we talked about in our heresy study is called Gnosticism. This belief system was accompanied by a truly incomprehensible divine saga that only the guru, even close to had their mind around, You'd come to church, and instead of hearing the sorts of truths I'm talking about right now, it would sound a lot more like Game of Thrones. Doesn't that sound fun? (laughs) I haven't seen it, but apparently it's pretty awesome, I guess. But it would be a saga of crazy tales and stories about deities that you barely understood. The greatest practitioners and leaders and gurus of Gnosticism were also magicians. You would not just have wine at the Lord's Supper, but I would do a magic trick where I turned water into wine. Wouldn't that be spectacular? You'd leave understanding almost nothing, and it would emphasize ultimately that you ought to indulge your feelings, your experience of sensuality, and all of these cults basically involved the same ingredients. Friends, you have to understand that your own heart says this very thing, I'll take the experience, I'll skip the meaning, I'll skip the truth. If you don't realize this about the human heart, watch the 2011 documentary Kumari. It's about a man who becomes a yoga instructor, fully intending to make a mockery of it all. He ends up getting a wide following. He speaks incomprehensible things. Most of what comes out of his mouth is meaningless and people leave going, he is so profound. Such a wonderful teacher. He breaks it to him at the end of the movie that the whole thing was a farce and he's not a guru in any sense of the word and people hated him for it. Because we love to be confused friends. Friends. We actually love messages that are incomprehensible that we can all leave saying that was great because nothing was said at all, but we had a wonderful feeling. Same happened in Christianity in a variety of expressions. In late medieval Christian worship, let me tell you what worship would be like to you. You would walk into a building with high ceilings, overwhelming visual stimuli, flawless professional choirs, incense and soothing smells, and the most excellent religious art in the world images of superhuman saints, and a whole service spoken in Latin, a language that you and no one present understands, perhaps even the speakers. You would leave, thank you, my friend. You would leave with great and wonderful feelings in your soul. You would leave having comprehended nothing found myself in a coffee shop recently, and there was a young woman who I heard her talking to her parents, and she said that she was joining a church. She just went through membership class. I was really excited, and I stopped, and I interjected in the conversation. I just said, Miss, would you mind telling me where you're going to become a new member at a church? I mean, I love stories like this. She goes, yes. I am becoming a member at St. Elizabeth's Catholic Church. I'm like, oh, man. I'm like, well, tell me, what was it that drew you to this church? Do you know what her answer was? And it was unambiguous. She goes, oh, yes. It was all of the smells and the art and the choirs. And I love the incense. And the girl did not say one thing about Jesus. Not a thing. I said to the woman, I said, okay, so... This is why you're intro... Do you mind telling me what background you're coming out of? She goes, yes, yes. I've been a practitioner of the new age my whole life. And I found that this isn't all that different. My friends, you better be clear in your minds that we love and have an appetite for things that don't make sense. Things that don't confront us with any objective truth that could offend. This is not the exclusive property of rome i dare say as protestants we have mastered the ability to speak sermons without content sermons that somehow inspire and are even riveting but in which nothing meaningful is said i was challenged years ago to listen to a mega church pastor i won't mention who it is just to listen to one of his sermons Someone was concerned that the teacher was heretical, and I listened to the sermon, and I was amazed I had to respond. In fact, the sermon was not heretical, because in order to be a heretical sermon, you have to actually say something, and nothing was said. (laughs) I listened to this sermon, and I was amazed that one could wax on for some 40 minutes and literally say nothing and be an incredible speaker at that. The whole sermon was based on John fourteen four, where Jesus says to the disciples, you know where I am going. And the phrase, you know, was repeated about 88 times to let the congregants know that whatever the question is they were dealing with, you know, you know the answer, you know, you know. At the end of the day, you would leave thinking that every single one of us had immediate access to the truth in our souls and that we could bypass the scriptures altogether. That was the closest thing to a message spoken. Friends, we would, if we could, reduce God to a recreational drug, and that is by and large what was happening in Corinth. We would much prefer a God who is a mysterious cause of exciting feelings in place of a speaker with an unambiguous message. Paul actually has to conclude this chapter by saying that in fact what's going on here is a replacement of the Christian God for another. He says, God is not a God of confusion. You virtually turn him into that, but that's not what he is. The Corinthians were not far from the Athenians who believed in an unknown God, a God who doesn't speak, or if he does, does doesn't with clarity, which leaves us all wondering which might be the better. Friends, I'm going to ask you some questions for your own self assessment. Ask yourself this right now. If you didn't hear anything else, I do hope you hear this. Would you rather feel content or have an infallible reason to be content? Would you rather feel unspeakable joy or have a sure ground to be unspeakably joyful? Would you rather feel confident or have a rational basis for confidence? What would you prefer? Ask yourself this question. I bet you, if we're all honest, there's a part of us that says, yeah, Brandon, I'd I'd prefer the feeling. And I might even be willing to skip the reason. Let me explain something. Um, A feeling without a reason is a mirage. It's a false feeling. See, if you don't have a reason for your joy or contentment or confidence, then you really don't have these things at all. To put it simply, if you have no reason for those things, then if you lose it, how in the world are you going to get it again? If you have no reason for those things, but you happen to feel them in a fleeting, passing way, once you've lost them, what ingredients do you need to get them again? You don't know. Even if you happen to feel joy or contentment or confidence right now at this moment, if you lack the reason, then I ask you this, how in the world can you keep those fleeting feelings? Friends, we, we are part of the culture of drug users and our religion is often just the same. You know, drug use is about having a mere physical cause give you a feeling. And when you lose the stimulus, you lose the feeling. See, but, but, but faith and contentment and gladness in Christ is about having an infallible reason so that even when the feeling's gone, even when the feeling's gone, the reality is there to keep you. Let me put this in terms of the gospel. You guys, God does not come into this world. He did not come from the beginning or in Christ Unknown or ambiguous. God is the God who is clearly known by all and whose will is unambiguously revealed. The first man, Adam, flagrantly disobeyed the creator in his clear law and teaching. We all fell with him. And you know what, you guys? Despite the difficult moral questions of our day, we all know that we have sinned. Every single one of us. We know that we have transgressed what is right. I didn't tell you this, but in that conversation I had with the pantheist, do you want to know how it began? It was incredible. I sat down at my uncle's birthday party next to this man. He asked me what I do for a living. I told him I was a pastor, and he said, you know what's always bothered me? Heaven seems like this place that should be perfect, but we're all pretty bad, so how can any of us end up there? And I said, dude, whoa, this is how I like start conversations about the gospel. Man, you nailed it. Even the pantheist who lived in a world of relative ambiguity was absolutely certain that we're all sinners who've transgressed a moral law. This means that God is not ambiguous, but is spoken with clarity to our conscience, and we know, we know that we can't wipe away the guilt of our sin And we even deserve to suffer the infinite wrath of God. The reason he believed in incarnation is the gospel seemed too simple for him. He thought people had to suffer for their sins. Some suffering was due for the evil we've done. (laughs) Let me tell you the gospel message which is not a mystery in that pagan sense. God in His infinite wisdom sent His Son, who happens to go by the name Logos or Word or Wisdom in 1 Corinthians one thirty. Jesus Christ is not some ambiguous feeling. He's not a drug-like cause of euphoria. This Jesus Christ, He is the very content of a message of salvation that we all need. This Christ is a prophet who has clearly disclosed how we can be saved. He is a priest who has perfectly obeyed God the Father on our behalf and suffered the divine wrath that we deserve in our stead if we should believe upon Him. He is a king who conquers our unbelief by His Holy Spirit and makes us His children. And He, in His kingly power, publishes this gospel in all nations. Friends, let me tell you some great news. He is no fleeting feeling that comes and goes. He is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the reason for our joy and gladness. He is the reason for our contentment and confidence. Even more, he is a living reason. And do you know what that means? It means that even when the feelings are gone, he is a living person who will wrestle us back to himself that we might be eternally glad in his arms. No feeling and no lifeless reason can do that for you. What this means is that our worship must be about that word, Jesus Christ, as revealed by his spirit. Thus Paul says, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? About what? About this Christ Jesus, about whom it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I hope you are glad in that reason today. I hope you would take that Christ and take that reason Beyond any fleeting feeling. Friends, I want to leave on this word. I don't want us to leave with some sort of pride that I'm so glad we're not like those charismatic Pentecostals who fill their services with unintelligible speech. I want to be really clear about something. We have something to learn from these brothers. Many of you might be asking the question, if they're not really speaking in tongues, what are they doing when they babble like that? Friends, I happen to think there's a perfectly valid biblical category for it. We are instructed again and again and again in the Psalms to shout for joy and to groan or grieve for sin. Friends, when you cry, you let out speech that is not intelligible, sounds that express your emotion, and when you are joyful, you say things like, Hooray! And I've heard you all do it at football games. I've heard you all do it in a variety of contexts, and I wonder if they ever come out in your prayers. These brothers and sisters, I would submit, are often doing something like Jeremiah does when he says, ah, Lord God, ah is not a word, it's an expression of emotion. Jeremiah does it again and again. Psalm 47.1 says, shout to God with the voice of joy, and I simply challenge you, do your prayers ever manifest an overt emotion of joy? Or do you race through them like some lifeless, rational content? Because if you do, I pray that you and I can be a little bit more like a charismatic. There's a general anointing of the Holy Spirit. He is called the oil of gladness in Isaiah 61.3. We all have him. And may we therefore say, if we were to rephrase Paul in verse 15, I will pray with a manifest understanding. And I will pray with a manifest spirit of gladness. I pray that we, as Presbyterian people, would not be ashamed to overflow with emotion from time to time. I'll have you know, Jesus left this world, not with a word, but a cry of inarticulate speech on the cross In Matthew 27.50, it says Jesus cried out with a loud voice, no words, and yielded up his spirit. I'll have you know just the same that Jesus will return with a loud, emotional shout, as it says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Dads, I want to address you particularly. Your family needs this so badly from you. Dads, your children need you to actually say in a way that could mildly be convincing or real, hooray! We've been set free, my boy! We have nothing to fear and we lack nothing! Hooray! Our children need to hear us say, ah, for the unbelief of the world, for the unbelief of our neighbors. I will tell you this right now. If you carry about in your family and pray with the understanding and with the spirit of gladness, your children will look on and say, I know the Lord's real. He makes my dad glad. I know the Lord is real because nothing grieves him so much as sin grieves him. We need to be a people who pray with the spirit. You guys about a week before we went down to actually see our daughter Chalcedon, who we ended up adopting. I was teaching via Northwest at a charismatic church. After a three-hour class, I asked these 20-somethings to pray for me because we were going down to uh, Oregon to go and meet our, our, what would be our daughter for the first time, and we needed wisdom about whether we could really adopt her. I asked them to pray for me. This one kid in the group stood up, and this kid Prayed like a lion. The other 15 kids all started speaking and shouting in what they thought were tongues and what I understood to be groanings and shouting to the Lord. And do you know what? It was powerful. It's powerful. I do sometimes wish that we would be willing to be emotional in our prayers, we wouldn't pray like machines. As it was, we went down to Portland some four days later and we came home prepared to adopt a little girl. Call it what you want. It was a mighty prayer. A mighty prayer. So I pray that we would leave this chapter not proud but with a deep sense of need to continue to be people who pray with the Spirit even if we have a different understanding of what speaking in tongues is. We can pray like Jeremiah prayed, we can have oohs and ahs, we can even cry out like Jesus did from the cross, with grief not expressed in a word. I hope we would do this more often. You happen to be with us today and you're an unbeliever, I hope that it's clear that we are glad in this church. We are not glad as a fleeting emotion or feeling. Even more, uh, we are glad to be people who have a reason to be glad in Jesus Christ and a living and active Savior who holds on to us and anoints us with the oil of gladness. If you have no reason for gladness, receive him today. He's your only hope and peace. Bow your heads with me. Mighty God, we come to you. Having confessed that we are sinners, we come to you challenged by your word. God, may we not go about singing or praying or even speaking your name with a sort of lifeless, mechanical tone and method, but rather, Lord God, may we be a people whose heart really does beat for you. May we be a people, Lord God, who loves the understanding, loves the truth, and makes that the centerpiece of our worship, but who are not ashamed, not ashamed to worship you with our whole hearts, with that gladness, that accompanies your spirit. May we be people overflowing with joy based on that great ground and reason of joy, the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, by your Holy Spirit. Amen.